If you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all of our past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or Smug Film or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month or more through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, You'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Whether you want us to plug your website, your movie, your small business, the movie The Protector with Tony Jaw, whatever it is, we'll plug it. And for $10 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do that 30-second plug on every single episode of the show. So once again, that URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now on to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. This is your host, Cody Clark. I'm here today with John D'Amico. Cody Clark. Cody Clark. (laughs) All right, as you can tell, this is not Cody Clark. In fact, Cody Clark is sick this week. And so John and I, from the comfort of our own homes, probably in the nude, are recording this. And we're going to talk to you today. Right, John? I'm actually in pajamas which is sort of my comfort level with this operation. You want the comfort of uh, clothing against your naked body. We're here today to talk about The Witch, our favorite new horror movie that just came out that uh, we really, really enjoy, and you should absolutely see if you missed it, maybe. I think it might have just gone out of theaters, but when it comes back, you should definitely check it out. We actually went to a party, which I think we mentioned before on the podcast, uh, for The Witch, where John and I already have our names in the Book of Satan. So we're ready. Yeah, The Witch is definitely still playing somewhere, and you should see it because it's really good. I don't know if we ever went over this party in detail, but my main takeaway was that um, the Church of Satan has incredible catering. <laughs> yeah, they had... Which I guess is thematically accurate, but also, like, I'm not going to lie, a major point in the devil's favor. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, what, the, uh... what point doesn't the devil have, let's be honest? The devil's macaroons were just, I mean, did you have those things? Oh, yeah. The little red ma- macaroons? They were spectacular. And the Madelines, right? Those little? Yeah. yeah. An open bar, so. <laughs> yeah, like good open bar, not bullshit. Yeah, like whatever you wanted. There was Black Label. Yeah. I was drinking Black Label because I figured it was the most devilly. Also just because it's mine, but it was uh, it was good. I guess I'm on board now. It was kind of like the end of The Witch. Which, so, okay, so we both went to this party before we even saw the movie, and then we went and saw the movie, and uh, it rocked. I really adored it. You know, this is so that, you know, the plot being that this is sort of a Puritan family that is out in the woods, uh, they get a baby, gets stolen, and then the, the movie was sort of this question of, you know, who's, who's stealing babies? <laughs> well, the cool thing is, it's not exactly even a question. I mean, they don't. They lay all their cards on the table in the first 10 minutes, which is really kind of interesting. And then, um, I mean, behind it all is just this incredibly impeccable recreation of the 1600s that I think is like the best recreation of pre-industrial society I've seen since Barry Lyndon. The style of the speech and just like little details like how the, the house is kind of a little too small for everybody. Nobody really has a lot of personal space. Right. And... um how everybody's constantly working, you know, like little details that most movies miss. 
So on top of being a really fucking scary movie, it had um, a lot of precision behind it. Yeah, I thought that, you know, what they did really excellently. I thought the camera work in this movie was excellent. You know, it's shot entirely in like like close-ups on faces and expressions and then with like a shallow focus. So you have this really built-in intensity and paranoia that really helps you feel the horror with these characters as they're experiencing horror. And like that idea that the open woods can be more claustrophobic than being in like a, you know, like a locked goat pen or something, you know, like that was excellent. Yeah. I've never seen a movie do that before where like all the shots in the woods were like through like three or four different layers of trees. Right. And um, you almost couldn't even see everybody clearly when they were in there. The woods were really uh, incredibly oppressive in this in a way that a lot of movies fail at. Yeah, I mean, it's I, that's like something that I yeah, definitely doesn't get seen often is that when you're out in the open, it can feel more oppressive than being indoors sometimes. And I think that, that it totally adds to the horror of this film. This wouldn't be a scary movie if, you know, like the idea that you're out in the woods, that means that, you know, and there's one other guy out in the woods that's trying to kill you or in this case, a witch, you know, that wouldn't be scary if you have the concept of, well, I can just go the other way and they're never going to find me, right? Like... To, to have that sort of idea that, you know, just because it's open, that actually means that, that it's a, you know, there's a better chance of finding you. You know, like that, that sort of contradiction, it was excellent. They did it so well. Well, and it wasn't even just the uh, fear of being witched. There's a lot of fear of, you know, just the natural elements of the woods. Right. The, the encroaching darkness and the, uh, the lack of food. The lack of food really gets you in the movie. You start to feel it. A lot of that is the acting because, man, the acting is just so goddamn good. Right. Yeah. And the, the girl, so the main girl, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, I think. Yeah. She well, she hasn't done much else, right? Or is this is like a sort of first movie for her or one of the first? She's been like floating around, I think, little bit parts in TV and stuff. But um, I think she's she was like a like a model who became an actor. She's, um, yeah, she's super young and she's new and she's just unbelievable. And the, the kid who doesn't even have a, uh, a Wikipedia page, Harvey Scrimshaw, which sounds like a 90 year old man, <laughs> but is actually like an eight year old, 10 year old kid. The one playing Caleb, I thought was also, um, eerily good. Oh yeah. It was, um, it was a first film and everything and it was, it was not a major film. So I don't really know where some of these people came from. The the, the parents were in stuff before. Yeah, the father I recognized. Um, he was in The Office. Do you remember him in The yes. Office? And Harry Potter, I think he was yeah. in. Yeah. He's one of these like British actors that you you see. Yeah, Ralph Innocent. I still remember him as um, Chris Finch in The Office mostly when he throws the shoe over the yes. bar. <laughs> but he was real good. The mother, it took me like till the end to figure out who she was, but she was... Um, the Stark mother's sister in Game of Thrones, right? Oh, the one who lives in the, the yeah. veil. Yeah, you're right. That's why she looked familiar. It took me forever to figure it out. I figured it out when I looked it up. Is the, the end of that? I should have realized it with the uh, the breastfeeding thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. I guess that's just her thing in movies. That's probably how she got cast. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, she had a perfect look for it too. You know, that sort of like that youthful and yet like, you know, haggard kind of look. Sorry, Kate Dickey, I guess is her name. Like, uh, but it, it fits so perfectly. Well, she also can do that like really angry 
about being loving thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like whenever she's caring about somebody, she's also dosing like a lot of anger about how vulnerable it makes her. Right. Which is really compelling, I think. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting... I feel like there's got to be a really interesting behind-the-scenes story with this movie because um, just the, the structure and the structure of the dialogue and everything. I complain a lot about the state of films, and I still think, in a broad sense, we're in kind of a bad period for filmmaking, but a, a movie like this, you almost can't believe, got made because it's so um, singular and, and um, uncompromising. Yeah, you know, so, you know, I kind of thought, I kind of wished, be, I think maybe for that reason that it had gone with a sort of straighter version of the story, that it was just about paranoia, you know, like, I kind of wanted it to be, and I, I honestly felt until the last 10 minutes, five minutes of the movie, I thought that it was still up in the air, but you didn't, right? You thought it was super straightforward. Yeah, I didn't have that. Yeah, we talked about this. I, I, I sort of took it on the the terms it was thrown at you from the beginning. I mean, maybe because I'm more of a horror movie person to begin with. But yeah, like there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of maybe think is going to turn out to be misleading or a hallucination or whatever. But you know what it was? It uh, it breaks from everybody's perspective in the first 10 minutes to follow the witch for a little bit. And I think when you do that in a way where you've broken off of everybody's perspective, if you're a good filmmaker, which this guy clearly is... You, you can't really walk back from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Without it being like a cheat. But I, I, it didn't, for some reason, but this didn't take away from the story for me. Like, I don't think this was a, a, a flaw or a bad thing, but for some reason I didn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I see what like, you're cause saying. Because they don't, they, they do show you, they show, you believe that there's maybe a woman, right? You believe that there's somebody out there, but they didn't show her actually, you know, all right, so... Let's let's get into a, some some nitty gritty stuff here. So you know a little bit of spoilers, but it is kind of the first fifteen minutes of the movie. So you know they they show that baby with a knife at its throat, but they don't actually show it die. And then they show like that sort of churning of blood and just in guts. So you couldn't. I honestly wondered if maybe they were going to keep the baby, and then that was going to be like you know a crow's blood or something. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it. Plus, the way it's shot is so surreal, right. and, and it's um, but. So like it kept it open for me, like I, I but I easily could have interpreted, and it would have been correct to interpret like, nope, that's all it is, and that wasn't that was fine too, but then like, but yeah. I, I think I think another aspect of that is it feels like one of those like '60s Polanski movies, which never really were, except for Rosemary's Baby, they never really were actually supernatural. Right. So you had this kind of feel like it was going to be like Repulsion or something, where you were watching somebody break down from the inside out right and it's almost like in a subtle way do you remember moon the sam rockwell one yeah you know how that movie knows that you've seen 2001 right so it keeps making the robot seem really sinister even though the robot's a good guy the whole time it feels like this is almost doing that with the polanski um psychological drama thing like it presents you uh, an early 60s psychological drama the whole time and then at the end you find out that she wasn't paranoid that's actually that's a great uh that's a great way to put it because it, one of the other things that i kind of thought was strange was all of the um the reviews that i've read keep not dropping this idea that like oh it's almost a feminist flick and i was like ah, i don't really know that i like i didn't agree with that particularly they flirt with it certainly they're flirting with the idea about how women are being treated 
you know, the, the sort of oppression that, that, you know, this, she's feeling with, uh, you know, her, her blooming womanhood and, and, you know, her brother sort of already starting to project onto her and the blame that gets placed on her above everybody else. Uh, and then that sort of freedom she has in that final scene, right? But I didn't feel like it had anything more coherent to say about that other than like, you know, like women be satanic, you know, like it didn't really say anything about it. It flirts with it. But as you, I think what, as you're saying earlier, that might've been the point was that it um, kind of presents you with this idea that maybe this is what we're talking about. In the end, they kind of back away from it, which was also fine. You know, like it, it was, it was totally okay. Yeah. I just feel like maybe reviewers are even getting confused because that's what they even wanted out of it. And they, they didn't really do it, but you can also kind of say that he sort of does it. Well, I think mainstream critics have trouble analyzing horror movies that really are just unrepentantly horror movies. You know, every time a good one comes around, you get a whole batch of reviews. The most recent one was Crimson Peak. You get a whole batch of reviews talking about how it's not really a horror movie. In that case, they said it was a gothic romance, which guess that's a horror genre. And... um and when you take something on the terms of the goal of this one was um, in large part to make you nervous and scared, mainstream critics have trouble um, folding that into how they discuss movies. So they'll, a lot of them will sort of shuttle it off into other, other uh, pigeonholes that kind of work easier with their, their mode. In this case, it would be, well, this one's about feminism, which is really not. Yeah. It's a... Uh, if anything, I mean, it's it's almost like a uh, like long day's journey into night or something where it's about a family that everybody's basically okay, but it's built on a bad foundation and they're coming apart. There's no, uh, I don't think there's any real contemporary political philosophy behind it, especially because so much of the source material was actual documents from the 1600s. Right. Well, see, and that's why, now that's like I, why I kind of wanted an almost straighter version of the story. Like I almost wanted the like, you know, the, the interpretation of, of us being from the future looking back at the past and saying, oh, you guys, you know, you interpreted this as which, but we interpreted it another way. I get what you're saying because I'm also dying for that movie right? to be made. You know, like I wanted like her brother's illness to have been like, just like poisoning, like eating some bad berry in the forest or like our epilepsy or something where they felt like this is a, this is a yeah. possession, you know, which is what probably would have been thought back in the day. And, but the only reason, yeah. like there's that disconnect, you know, it's like people look back and they think like, oh, they thought it was possession. What idiots like, no, it's just like the word possession was the word that was used for illness. You know, it was like interchangeable. It wasn't that they were like, yeah, and we still call it seizure, which etymologically is basically the same word as possession. Right. I mean, that stuff is really interesting to me. So I would, you know, I'd love to see just like a straightforward story like that where they use those words and they talk about it, but you see how mundane it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, or, or like a, yeah, I would really like that movie. Yeah, or too. like or like an ancient Greek movie or something like you know that was that was really straightforward with that. That would be so cool, and that's kind of I think maybe even what I was hoping for, which is what kind of made me continue despite evidence to believe that it was going to be something else. But you know that also made it made the movie fun. You know, so it'd be interesting for you to watch it again now, knowing from the beginning that it's not that movie, right? And see how different the experience is. I really wanted to see this again. I, I probably will go see it again before it leaves theaters, which, even as a big horror movie person, isn't really usually the case with me. 
Like I didn't, um, as much as I loved It Follows, I didn't really come out of It Follows wanting to immediately go watch It Follows again because it was so kind of grueling. And this one was just as grueling, but it, 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 there's just something so captivating under it. You know, you want to like dig into its its world a little more. Yeah, totally. You know, the one thing, I, so I would want to go back in there to see it again and see what I think about the one part of the movie that I that took me out of the movie that I didn't like, which was that cliche witch in the woods with the hut. And what annoyed me about her... You mean the Little Red Riding Hood yeah, looking thing? Yeah, the sexy uh, Victoria's Secret yeah, I, I, I'm, witch. I got why they did that, but I didn't love yeah, it. Yeah, because like, they could have done the cliche. I mean, like obviously that cliche came from somewhere, right? And they, they you know, said that they based a script off of you know, actual court documents or whatever. Uh, you know, that's fine. Or folklore. That's perfect. You know, like it wasn't that it wasn't that it was a cliche of a witch in the woods. It's just that I didn't like her, how they presented her. I thought she was a little too modernly sexy. And then she was wearing yeah, this agree. very like red velvet, hot topic-y, like Halloween witch robe. <laughs> I wonder if it was her makeup too, because she really did look super modern. Like her face. Her, yeah, her very face modern. was way too modern. And she is, I, I Googled that woman. She's like a Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> and so, like, I get it. Like, they wanted someone sexy. But, like, you know, you know, the mother in this movie has these weird sexual moments. And that, you know, that's what sexy looked like back then. <laughs> you know, like, I, or even I was sister. happy to, like. I mean, the, the lead woman, Thomason, actually a lot. And you sort of believed it as a, as a element of the time and also as somebody who's just very attractive. Right. Yeah, they they sort of cut to her as being like uh, untrustworthy because she was a little too cute. Mm -hmm. And that stuff was I thought that was all more interesting. And I feel like, you know, what's hot when you have like what, like maybe 50 people in a village to choose from? It's not going to be the Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> yeah, it's um... and especially for a little boy like that who's never seen. So like even but now then again, this might also fall back in with my idea of like I kind of wanted it to be in his mind is that like for that little boy's idea of what hot is, it would have been closer to what his sister or his mother looked like. Cause he doesn't really know anyone else. Yeah. It was the one time where like, you don't buy that they're all alone. Right. You know, like it was the one time where he felt like he had like a broader range of experience and he should have. Yeah. I kind of expected, like I saw where that scene was going and I kind of expected the witch to look like his sister in that scene. See, that would have been really and interesting, like a straight psychological, like if it was just the same actress, but different, like tweaked. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of surprised they didn't do that because that feels like such a, such a layup. But then I guess that would be in contradiction to what, you know, the end of the film is. How so? You know, because if it, if it was his sister, like if it was actually his sister, then they're putting in that, that sort of psychological, maybe this isn't really happening element. Though you can also argue that it's just magic and it's... <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was just magic. I didn't. I thought the witch really looked like she looks like in the rest of the movie, and that was just bedevilment. Like when she shows up as the kid later at the end, right? Because then you do see her grab his his face, right, and her hand turns old. Right? Yeah, like The Shining. I could have used more goats in this movie. There was a good goat representation. That's probably the best part. I was I was going in expecting a lot of goats because the goats were talked up. More than maybe any aspect of the film beforehand for me. So I got a lot of goats. I got like way more goats out of this than I did out of probably any movie of the year Who's so far. Who's talking up goats to you? 
<laughs> like everybody. But I will say there were not enough. I do love. I would like. Yeah, continue. I would have liked another maybe hour of the goats. Oh, me too. I love the shots of those little goats panting. Yeah. It was freaky. It was a freaky goat. I think it's hard to make an animal scary in a realistic way in a movie. It reminded me of uh, the thing where the, the dog that's walking around the camp is like really intimidating. And it's clear that it's not like an acting thing. It's just kind of a scary looking dog. Right. A sweet dog, but you know, like, like clearly still kind of a wolf. I wonder how you make a goat scary like that. Well, goats have those wonderful rectangular pupils. I feel like that's about all you need. <laughs> like hmm. those, those great eyes and then like a couple of like cute little pants. Because that's what's, that's what's creepy about him is that like he looks so innocent and cute, yeah. but with weird eyes. So you kind of don't trust him. And they move weird. Yeah. So did you like the ending? The, just like I, I was talking about this the other day with somebody else and, and they were saying how they, they really wanted the camera to cut to the goat talking. But they thought that there's what? no way that that would have looked good. It would have taken away from it being actually creepy. Yeah, it would have looked ridiculous. It would have looked like... Um... It would have looked like a scary movie. Right. But I kind of wanted it, too. If you want a movie where the goat talks, then watch Drag Me to Hell, which is great, but is funny. Right. And even that couldn't make it scary, even though it's Sam Raimi who's really good at making things scary. It was just funny looking. I um, I thought the movie was going to end when she lays her head down on the table. Do you remember that shot? Right. And there's part of me that still thinks it would have been a probably a better movie if it had ended there. Or even maybe in the middle of the conversation, because you like you kind of get it at that point, you know, like you got what what happened. You got that it was all kind of she was almost like gaslit by the witch into entering the coven and everything. And then like to actually see it was almost um, it almost felt like the movie was playing catch up with you. But it's the type of thing where I I really want to watch it a second time to see how I feel about the ending the second time around. I just kind of, I wanted more of it in a way. Like, I felt like if that's how you're going to go, don't give me five minutes of it. Give me like a a half hour of it. See, I think that would have been weird. Then it becomes a very different movie and you almost would have to have led with that. Right. To be able to pull that off. And that's, I think, part of why, like, I kind of felt that they did a a bit of a bait and switch. But then again, I I really, but I liked it. It wasn't that it was bad. I just almost wanted, I thought, like, if you're going to do a straightforward, like, you know, talking goat satan movie like let's just get with it like i want to see that goat you know like otherwise like this sort of like is it paranoia is it is it real and then to end with oh no it's totally real it was like ah well it's good but like now i just want more goat (laughs) i mean if you really didn't want it to be real you could decide in your head that she never woke up after she laid down and went to sleep you know that the rest was just a dream because it had a really it was shot differently from the rest of the movie, which which can um, can be a signal to that. That's true. But uh, I mean, I I go with it's real down the line from the beginning, especially with the apple thing and everything. I mean, I never questioned that it was really going on. It's kind of interesting because I think it's almost a different movie if you're a horror movie person than if it is if you're not, because your expectations are very different in the first half, because. If you're not a horror movie person, the pedigree is probably like Carl Dreyer and um, early Polanski. Probably more Dreyer than Polanski. It, it reminded me a lot of Carl Dreyer's movies, where you have this sort of uh, like cold paranoia under everything. 
but it's not really about that aspect of it. It's about the human condition under those circumstances, I guess. And then if you are a horror movie person, your pedigree for it is like Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, which is um, very overtly almost like a witch revenges type genre. You know what I mean? You had those movies where it was about like witches taking their revenge on uh, on society and that becomes your uh, your background for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. In, in some way, it reminded me actually of... Uh... The Ben Wheatley of a field in England movie. Yeah, yeah, I could see but that. It, because I think it had that same sort of thing where people maybe wanted something a little more straightforward and it ended up being like about alchemy <laughs> and, yeah. and being like surreal and magical. Whereas I think people expected it was going to be. Well, that one gave you more of an out than this. Did. Yes. Yeah. Because that one, they were on uh, on shrooms the whole time. But they didn't do the shroom thing. You know what I mean? Like, they there was too yeah. much other weirdness happening that it was hard to just say, like, well, they're on mushrooms. Because then I, I even wanted, like, I kind of went in there expecting it was going to be, like, a straightforward period drama that gets totally derailed by mushrooms. And it really wasn't. But, like, that could have been, like, that would have been fun, I think. But... It, it ended up being more, like, actually about, like, alchemy and about, like, th- this sort of other weirdness that actually really sort of was happening in the 17th century, except with that bizarre kind of, like, psychedelic twist that wasn't as cliche psychedelic as you would expect. So it even kind of worked in with the idea of, you know, what, what could there be... There was made. a point there where it was it was as cliche psychedelic as you would expect. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... Not in a bad yeah, there way, were but I mean... <laughs> There was kaleidoscope vision at right. points. But the fact that it's in black and white even kind of like undermines that. Yeah. That was probably to make the costumes look better. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I know. This was definitely, it was definitely low budget. This one, it was in color, but it was one of those ones where it's so desaturated, it's almost black and white. And I wonder if part of that was to make the costumes look better. Whenever I see a movie like that, I just assume everything's to make the costumes You're look better. You're talking about The Witch? You yeah. know, so I really like the color in that movie. Me too. It really felt like uh, winter in a way that not a lot of movies do. Right. And it had that sort of, it did have that, that kind of older look to it. I See, I also wonder sometimes where you look at like any period drama or whatever, uh, anything that is like pre-20th century where the whites are too white, <laughs> you know, and like that yeah. kind of thing or like the dyes are too on the nose and and everything has like a little too much color and I I wonder and that isn't to say that that the stuff didn't exist that there wasn't color wasn't invented obviously it you know that's another sort of uh misnomer that you know the past wasn't black and white but it right but fabrics were yeah they were shittier so it's like you you had you had more color in the woods and you would right that's why I kind of wondered but I think they did a great job with this and even though like you can look at it and see that it's so clearly you know, that they, they went back and changed the color on it. It didn't bother me. I thought it, it was really consistent and really worked in, in the storytelling. You also could buy that, like, it was seasonal. You know, a lot of movies that have this kind of look, like the Mothman Prophecies, which I really like, or The Sixth Sense, which I I mean, I adore. Those movies, you feel like the world that they give you, it's never going to be like a sunny 75 degree right. day. You know, it just like doesn't exist in that universe but this one you really and i think it it speaks to the um care it put into creating a a society that depended on stuff like this you really get that it's like the bad season for them and um 
you know, if if we came into the story a few months later or earlier, it would probably be very colorful and very beautiful. And they even like mention that when he has that speech about the uh, the tree. Yeah, it's like a weird thing, but it, it it was a nice movie to acknowledge the existence of seasons as opposed to just a perpetual doom cycle. It also felt like a New England season. That was the other thing that. Yeah, which are horrible seasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, you know, I, I go to I go to Maine twice a year, and Maine is beautiful, but sometimes you're in like the woods, especially in winter or in fall, and you're like, oh, these are, you know, like it it feels colorless. It doesn't feel like these sort of like, it, and not like it's not ugly. It's just that it had that same kind of moodiness to it. It's threatening. Yeah, it gets a little. It gets a little less you know, I'm in a magical, beautiful forest, (laughs) you know, like it isn't, it's like, it's like a working man's forest. (laughs) Yeah. It's one where like you, you could really buy that pre-electricity. You could just die there. Right. (laughs) Which is cool because like, I think, I think it's a very hard thing to present a movie that can put you into another historical world and then also make you feel like really visceral hard to argue with emotional like terror at times those are both very difficult things to get out of a movie and to get them both out of the same movie is like the number of movies that that have ever done that is like you know maybe 15 or 20 yeah i'll give you that (laughs) well i have to say that some of the imagery in this movie I, i really did like that what made this movie creepier was kind of what doesn't happen and then when something does happen you're like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, like there was uh, that the mother's dream sequence was just that was like so intense. Yeah, because you 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 knew what was happening, and you couldn't. There's nothing you could do to stop it. You and know? then for her to wake up and have real world consequences to that was was oh that that one scene of her in that chair with the the crow. The Raven, yeah. like, oh my god, <laughs> that was like a perfect do, and it also was something that was like, like that's ugh, you know, like that's gonna make any woman recoil. <laughs> yeah, that was brutal. People uh, walked out in the theater in that part when I saw it. Really? Yeah, I feel like two or three people. It doesn't get worse than that, which was interesting. You know, like even the the scene of the goat, you know, uh, going after the father was creepy but it wasn't as intense you know like and that that was thought was a really interesting kind of like peak of horror in that film i thought that was the most terrifying part of the movie and the rest of it was like you know it was those subtle little things that then led up to that moment and then it kind of goes down and goes and then it's like sort of up and down from there but conceptually the scariest part is um locking the three of them in the barn with the goat oh yeah yeah but they never they never push that really, which was a, a kind of an interesting choice because he he veered away from giving you like a very tense locked room horror movie in there. I mean, he gives you a little bit of it in in one part that really is fucking terrifying when they wake up in the middle of the uh-huh. night. <laughs> I mean, that part that I think that was the scariest part for me. But um, just the three people stuck in that little barn together. And each of them thinks someone else in the barn is a witch. That was, um, you could have, if you wanted to, you could have started the movie there, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that was terrifying. That was like that, it preys on on every fear, you know? And again, like that idea that like, just because you're, you know, confined doesn't mean that uh, 
the world's not out there stalking around trying to get you. Yeah. That was like a, it a very much like, you know, technology won't save you kind of fear. <laughs> yeah. It was like Evil Dead, the thing in the in the cellar in the middle of the floor, uh, which is still, I think, like one of the best images in, in any horror movie. It had that same like inescapable, you know, like you're stuck with it feel. Right. I got nothing else. You got anything no, else? No, I was going to say, you know, just to, like, we can wrap it up, but uh, I, uh, great film. <laughs> Everyone has to go see it. I was really impressed with it. And I don't know, I feel like maybe the only reason that you might be disappointed with it is if you're expecting it to go too hard in one direction or the other. Like, you have to yeah. go in with an open mind and, like, an, at least an interest in how people lived. <laughs> it's also, I mean, just, like, in terms of filmmaking, it's so... You can't overstate how beautifully put together it is. Even when you, like, physically don't want to look at the screen because you're scared... It's so beautifully done that, like, you can't look away from it. Yeah, agreed. I the, I love the camera work in this movie. It just stood out so much. And the music was oh, so yeah, good. Oh, yeah, the music. I, we didn't even mention it, but the music was excellent. So creepy. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was so oppressive. And the, the acting, I mean, it never happens with horror movies, but if it were me, I would already be... Um, trying to dole out some awards to these people yeah you know considering so that's the other part of the movie i guess we didn't really touch upon is that considering the dialogue is all mostly period dialogue you know that could have been cheesy real quick and there it maybe take there's a bit of an adjustment period i think where you have to just kind of take it as it is well it's like the wire the first episode you're just trying to catch up to what everybody's saying (laughs) yeah i mean they didn't they didn't press it too hard but they did they were consistent with it and so it yeah. doesn't, it never, you don't ever feel like enough, you know, you don't ever feel like they're putting it on. Like it, even if you initially kind of feel like, oh man, this is what I have to deal with. Like eventually you, you, you don't realize that's what you're listening to. And I think the, the acting yeah. clearly is the only way that that happened. It was good acting. Yeah. And considering how many of them, it was their, their first parts. I mean, basically everybody, but the parents, right? like I, it's just spectacular, um, spectacular acting i don't know how you get three kids to handle that dialogue the way they do oh yeah and those little twins were like unbearable (laughs) and not because they were bad actors just because it was unbearable (laughs) and they did it perfectly i was like oh obnoxious little shitty brother and sister perfect yeah yeah a great great movie like cannot wait to see what else comes out of uh old eggers there yeah i'd like to see what it does and it's one of these ones that I think is perfectly straddled that um, the horror subculture and the regular movie subculture will be like fighting with each other about it for forever. Everybody's going to try to take it, which is good because that usually that's what happened with like Silence of the Lambs. You know, that's when one gets gets into people's skin. And for the horror movie people, I would suggest if you really liked it to watch uh, Carl Dreyer's movie or Debt which is about um, miracles in pre-modern rural life. Very beautiful. And for the non-horror movie people who liked it, I would suggest watching Witchfinder General, which is one of the great horror movies about uh, witchcraft that we have. That's a great name. (laughs) You never saw Witchfinder General? Vincent Price? He's like, well, they were called Inquisitors, but they were called Witchfinders, but he was basically an Inquisitor traveling around the country. Trying to find witches. It's really good. 1968, I think. 
part of that wave of like perfect 1968 horror movies. What's that Polanski movie about the the witch hunters or whatever? The vampire hunters, hunters. the fearless vampire hunters. (laughs) I hated that movie. It was terrible. I like the part with the mirror when he's at the party and he looks into the mirror and he realizes that he's the only one who's reflected. Uh, That was like a really good shot. All I remember of that movie is uh, Sharon Tate in the bathtub. Yeah. (laughs) And also disliking most of it. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and then uh, we will uh, be right back with uh, some more stuff. And now, Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. That watch costs more than you carve. I made $970,000 last year. How much do you make? You see, pal, that's who I am, and you're nothing. Nice guy? I don't give a shit. Good father? Fuck you. Go home and play with your kids. You wanna work here, close? You think this is abuse? You think this is abuse, you cocksucker? You can't take this, how can you take the abuse you get on a set? You don't like it, leave. I can go out there tonight with the materials you've got and make myself $15,000. Tonight. In two hours. Can you? Can you? Go and do likewise. A-I-D-A. Get mad you son of a bitches, get mad. You want to know what it takes to sell real estate? It takes brass balls to sell real estate. Go and do likewise gents. Money's out there. You pick it up, it's yours. You don't, I got no sympathy for you. You wanna go out on those sits tonight and close, close? It's yours. If not you're gonna be shining my shoes. And you know what you'll be saying, a bunch of losers sitting around in a bar. Oh yeah. I used to be a salesman. It's a tough racket. This has been a robot reenactment. Now, back to the show. Hello. I am the hunky smug film sponsor plug man. I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the smug film podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter, he's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby Slow on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons, Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here at Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. Hello. I am the new Smug Film voicemail plug lady. I'm sexier better, and lovelier in every way. Anyway, please leave a question or a comment for the Smug Film Podcast at 718-395-9711, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening to my beautiful voice, and now, back to the show. And we are back. So, one thing that John and I have been really wanting to talk about is uh, a great documentary that came out last 
year, I believe, right? Last year, 2015. That uh, is on Netflix right now. And you should absolutely watch it because it's fucking amazing. We, we both uh, saw this and loved it and uh, have been... And you do. Brad is also yeah. a huge, huge fan and of And we've been dying to talk about it. So we're, we're just going to do it right now. <laughs> that movie is Best of Enemies, which is directed by Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon. Two people. Who are two or people. Or one person <laughs> with a long name. Uh, which is basically about William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal's uh, debates on the 1968 uh, Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Now, if you have not seen these, please do yourself the biggest favor ever and just go on YouTube, type in William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal, and just please watch. Like, even if you find that, like, one-minute clip of uh, Buckley freaking out, it's probably called something like Buckley Freaks Out on Gore Vidal. It's fucking amazing. I don't remember. Like, I, I saw these forever ago, and I, I don't know how or why. I like I like politics, so I, I, at some point I ran into them, and I, they've I've always been fascinated with them. And I think you had a similar kind of uh, uh, attraction to them, right, John? Yeah, I mean they float around forever, and I'm a big um, Gore Vidal fan, and have been for a long time. And I'm also like super interested in the uh, Vietnam War era, so I came across them, you know, here and there, over and over. But but. Um, until this documentary, it didn't really occur to me that really what you're watching when you're watching this like sparring contest between these two guys is the beginning of um, pundit politics. Right. They were on, was it ABC? Yeah, they were, they were the ABC post-debate show. And ABC at the time had easily the worst ratings. Like it wasn't even close. They were, um, they were in the gutter. And they um, flew to the top off the back of these two's... Um, Bitter because they genuinely hated each other. Um, and they're both incredibly intelligent people who just couldn't be in the same room for more than 10 minutes. Uh, and, and what ABC learned was that that was just so much more watchable than like a reasonable discussion. <laughs> so um, they, they flew to the top of the ratings and, uh, and it was almost the beginning of the mess we're in now. This is a, a, a perfect year to watch this movie. Right. With the, the nightmare media mess we're going through every day of this idiotic race. You can see the genesis of it here. And what's heartbreaking about it is, in 68, it was like, actually, it was real people having these conversations. They were both brilliant. Buckley was a lunatic, but he yeah, was Yeah, I mean, Buckley is one of those guys who I disagree with everything that comes out of his mouth. And I, he's, like, fathered most people I hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know like uh, at least philosophically but you know he he is a he's fascinating to listen to and he is he's charming he's intelligent he uses the best he has the best vocabulary i've heard in a long time uh or ever you know i don't he, no, no one else has really topped him and then and he doesn't oh sorry, no and then, and then you have vidal who's also like the most charming sarcastic asshole but he's your asshole <laughs> Yeah. Super talented. But but the difference with Buckley was he 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 didn't shy away from ever letting his opponents say their position. Right. Like now it's um if somebody starts making a good point, they'll cut their right. mic. But Vidal, I mean, he had a show in the early 80s and like as a liberal, it's a shockingly great show because 
you get like the heads of the Black Panthers on at the time and they just sit there for 20 minutes and give their point of view. And it's like one of the only places you can even get that right. footage. And that's the thing about Buckley is that like at least he had the intelligence. He had the the ego that he thought he could bring in the most <laughs> you know intelligent yeah. and articulate uh, people on the other side bring them in and he thought well I'll still beat them because I'm better and like yeah. it's great because and it's fascinating because it, it kind of works both ways I don't know that I ever have heard him and, and personally felt that he you know quote unquote beat them but it is at least interesting that he let them talk and that he does have at least responses whether or not I even agree on like the most basic level with what yeah. those responses are yeah it's funny because the 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 sheer mass of ego in this whole thing is just unbelievable. You know, it's it's the two of them who are um, as egotistical as any two people who ever lived. And then like your major interviews are like Christopher Hitchens and Dick Cavett, and you're just like overwhelmed with these um, very intelligent people who all think they're the most intelligent right. person there. I mean, that's that's what I really found super fascinating about this movie. Beyond uh, the question about. Uh, what television's done to uh, change how we talk about politics. That, that That's like the main point, I think the main thesis of this film. And it's a really interesting topic. But the other thing that I found just totally fascinating on a sort of character level is the fact that these debates became this sort of like rosebud moment for Vidal and Buckley <laughs> and that it ruined yeah. their lives. Like there is this like clear point of these two egos clashing and both of them leaving feeling that they were just, they got destroyed and like they spent the rest of their lives, like trying to recapture the glory of those moments and like reliving these debates as like, what could I have said that would have been better that would have, you know, cause the fact that Buckley loses his shit uh, in one of the, the last debates haunted him because he is such a composed yeah. guy. The fact that he got to the point where he said, I'm going to like, he basically like what he calls like Vidal like a a, a queer uh, oh shoot it's such a hold on I'll get the I'll get the such exact a hilarious quote. quote Vidal calls him a uh, crypto Nazi yeah. because Buckley um, they're arguing about whether um, it's during like the the complete clusterfuck in in the Chicago convention which is another thing that. Everybody now who doesn't know about, like, owes it to themselves to learn about that now because it's going to happen again right. this year. Um, they're, uh, they're arguing about whether some of the, the rioters were pro-Nazi. So Vidal calls him a crypto-Nazi and Buckley loses his shit and says, direct quote, listen, you queer, stop calling me a crypto-Nazi or I'll sock in your goddamn face and you'll stay plastered. <laughs> And it's it, you the the burning hatred in his face when he says it. It's just like it's the one time his homophobia really burns. Yeah, to the and it's not like you know the word queer now is, has become a little tamer. When he says it, it's really it's bad. <laughs> yeah, because if you don't know, Vidal was one of the first major gay intellectuals in America, and and that um, was never. It that was always, open about it, I don't think, right? That was sort of it was like an open secret. No, it really. was open, open. I mean, his um his first big successful book was The City and the Pillar, yeah. which was um the first book about being gay to be published. One of at least the first books about being gay and in gay relationships to be published in America. He was um 
majorly hated figure at this time among um, the religious right because he was openly and unrepentantly gay. It was also sort of an undercurrent in his fights with Norman Mailer, but not to the same extent. Mailer was a Mailer was a little more open-minded, but Mailer had all that, you know, macho shit, so sometimes he would come at Vidal with that. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal because um, Buckley had never really resorted to that before, even though he always sort of, it, it was always kind of like under the surface as something that he disapproved of with Vidal. Uh, and then he fucking, you know, he loses it and he just says what he's thinking. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. And, it's, uh, it's not even, it's just, it's really intense. The bitch of it is, it's genuinely great television. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, you hate to think it, but it really is. Because the phrasing is just so funny. And it's so vicious at the same time, you know? It's it's like it's like Eastbound and Down or something. Like, you just can't believe the, uh, the, the phrasing alone. But it's, I mean, it, it's like this perfect microcosm of um, what the 68 conventions were like, you know? It's just people all of a sudden losing it without even realizing they've lost it until it's too late. And I, I'm telling you, I think all this is going to happen again sooner rather than later and may already be in the process of happening. So for anybody the least bit interested in American politics, you should be watching this. I, I do wonder if it's going to happen again. You know, I was actually looking up the phrase, the personal is political, became popular in 69, which is, of course, after all of this stuff. And I feel like that, right. you know, even though that phrase has a lot of extended meanings like this these debates feel so personal uh and and it does kind of remind me how we're in this age where you can't disagree with someone openly on politics even if you're on the same side without them unfriending you on facebook you know like this idea that everyone now is cutting people's mics no one wants to listen to anybody they want to listen to themselves and they want to surround themselves with what they want to hear on all sides like not republican democrat anyone and it, it's it is definitely an interesting and bizarre trend that but it's um I don't think it's new. I think it's new that it's happening among professionals, but I think it's it's always been like that with you know like lay people yeah there's always been this this sort of violence to all of it sixty eight was um a great analog in that way because it was that was um Bobby Kennedy. And George Wallace were running, you know, it was another one like, like, um, this year where it's really, uh, an ideological fight reaching a climax. It's, it's somebody who's presenting one view of the world and then somebody who's presenting a completely diametrically opposed one and whoever wins, the opposition is going to get something ripped away from them. Uh, and I, Wallace didn't, I mean, he really didn't get any votes at all, but the, the presence of him in the, in the primaries was a lot like Trump now, you know, he was the sort of end game of what they were talking about. And when you have a candidate like that, I think you have a, you have an election cycle that is almost doomed to, to that kind of, uh, rhetoric. And then of course in 68, it wasn't even just rhetorical. I mean, they fucking killed Bobby. And they took a shot at Wallace, I think, in the next go-round. Was it uh, 72 where he got shot? Uh, I'd have to look it up. It's kind of an interesting thing from because starting from, um, starting from Kennedy in 1960, 
was it 60 or 61? 60, right? Starting with Kennedy, you don't get a candidate who wasn't involved in an assassination attempt or an assassination until Clinton in 92, which is crazy when you think about it now, but um, Kennedy runs, wins, is killed. Johnson runs and is there because his president was killed. And then by the time the 68 election comes around, Roberts killed. Wallace is shot at. Um, and then Wallace runs again in the 70s. And uh, and Reagan gets shot at. And you don't get uh, a presidential candidate who nobody tried to murder until the 90s. Which is crazy, right? I, I feel like as a culture, we haven't really dealt with that. It's almost surprising. On It's just like, well, why not? <laughs> Not that I'm encouraging yeah. anyone to go out and murder a president or someone running for president. You didn't hear that here. You sound like Richard Harris in Unforgiven, <laughs> which now is a line that you get. But yeah, I mean, the, the documentary is fascinating. It's, it's really interesting to look back at this stuff and then connect it to now because it's more relevant than it's ever been. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. Not just a great documentary, but like it's just super important stuff to know as an American. Another thing, you know, it also makes you wish that we were back uh, in the day where we had actual intellectuals <laughs> coming out and talk publicly. You know, like I, I do genuinely miss that level of discourse on television. Me too. I mean, they still talk. It's just nobody airs them yeah. anymore. <laughs> there's not like one figurehead you can point to. And there's no one with... I don't know. It's like it almost just feels like people can't be bothered who are too intelligent, which you can't blame them. <laughs> and then the other side of it is like, I don't know. It's like you need that perfect mix of ego and intelligence. And I don't think it's um, I don't really think it's that. I think it's not profitable, really. I think a bunch of morons screaming. What this proved really was that people screaming at each other was more profitable than anything else. And it was only a matter of time before they figured out it doesn't have to be p smart people screaming at each other. I feel like, yeah, I mean, like, you, yes, but then that also makes me feel like that, that they just took away the wrong interpretation, you know, like, then again, it is profitable, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the nightmare of it all is for the gains that, uh, you know, um, Murdoch and uh, what's his face, Leslie Moonves, the, the Viacom head. Oh. Didn't he go out and say that uh, Trump would be bad for America, but would be good for his yeah, profits? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a secret or anything. It's they have a clear agenda, and we're all subsidizing it. Which is uh, why this movie is really important because it shows you the beginning of it, and it shows you you know you start with something that's fairly reasonable, and you watch it just untether. Night by night. Yeah, that's the depressing part of it. All right. Well, that's it. That was our exciting <laughs> discussion of witches and politics. The new witches and politics smug film. Yeah, not too dissimilar. They're both movies about uh, somebody trying to keep their sanity in a world that just doesn't really help. And politics. It's both politics, isn't it? It's all politics. All right. Well, Cody, feel better. We will uh, have you back. Hopefully, uh, you, thank you all for bearing with us in our, uh, you know, use of... In our bloodless coop? <laughs> you know, without uh, over Skype and probably at a slightly lesser audio uh, quality than you, our fair listeners, are used to on your delicate ears, but we tried. <laughs> 
John, anything last uh, to say yeah. here? Uh, no. Go watch The Witch. Go watch Best of Enemies. Actually, um, there's another movie on Netflix. If you like Best of Enemies, I think Jenna, I told you to watch this one too. Called The Thread. That um, I don't think it is a frontline, but it's the frontline producers who made it. It's about uh, when the Boston bombing happened. The the idiots on the uh, internet like ID'd the wrong person right. as the bomber. It's about that. And it's really interesting to watch alongside Best of Enemies because it's like, Best of Enemies is like the setup for here's the media completely coming apart as a reasonable entity. And then the thread is like the end game. It's like, this is what happens now. You have uh, basically witch hunts. Yeah, that's actually a great, that's a great tie-in. It's real good. It's also like under an hour long. It's like 50 minutes. Yeah, I definitely have to check that out. It's a breezy one. Well, I'll say the, the one thing on Netflix that I guess I'll, I'll suggest, though it's less on topic, but uh, there was an interesting, another documentary called The Man Nobody Knew, which is about uh, William Colby, who was, uh, you know, of, of the CIA. Oh, I wanted to see that. Was it's, that it's, good? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I think part of, <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting. There's wonderful footage. Uh, it's a really, really fascinating look into the CIA. Um, the documentary itself, it's made by his son, kind of saying how he never really knew his father in a way, that he was always sort of mysterious. Yeah. And then maybe that's part of what I thought was a little disappointing about the movie was that you're like, you kind of want more info. <laughs> but then again, here's the guy calling yeah. it the man nobody knew. And I'm here. I am complaining that like, I don't know him enough. So it is what it is, but um, it's certainly, it's fascinating. It's an interesting look uh, into the CIA and the sort of work inner workings of the CIA for information that at least is known. And it's interesting to see sort of the son kind of searching for his father in that way. I thought it was, it was worth watching. And it's on Netflix, so check it out. Yeah, let's scope that out. All right, well, that's it. So uh, have a wonderful day. <laughs> Bye, John. All right, see y'all.